This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Who are we to say who God can and cannot save, will and will not save? That Jesus dies for all and all can come to him freely. And God can work miracles to change the hearts of people. And he has done it, he is doing it, and he will always do it for his glory. Amen? And so don't write off people and don't think to yourself, that person will never get saved. Pray for them, pray for them, and pray for them. I know stories about people that have been prayed for for 20, 30, 40 years. And then they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Keep praying for them and keep believing God was able to save. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. You have someone who you've been praying to come to know Jesus? Maybe you were that someone for a friend or family member and don't realize it. In today's message, Pastor Gary reminds you that Jesus died for all people. Therefore, never write off someone as never getting saved. If you know someone who isn't saved, you should continue to pray for them. You never know how close they are. It could take years or even decades, but you have to remember that God can and will change hearts. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts chapter 11 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. A meal in Middle Eastern culture, even to this day, is seen as something that unites the people participating. They even had this general belief. You know, it wasn't mystical. It was just, this is the mindset that I'm going to eat from the same loaf of bread that you're eating from as we break bread together, and the same thing nourishes me that nourishes you, and it strangely connects us, and it unifies us. So a sharing a meal was, was much more about unity and connectedness and fellowship and, and this oneness aspect than it was just you know filling your belly. So that's what's alarming to them because in essence, what Peter did was by going into a home of a Gentile and eating with them was he was acknowledging his oneness in fellowship with them. And these believing Jews have trouble with this because they don't, they don't understand what Peter's come to understand. So Peter's going to help them understand it by recounting for them the vision and the circumstances from chapter 10. I'm just going to read through it. It's a straight read because he's going, to, he's going to recite what I just summarized. So take a look at verse 4. So Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. And then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was pulled up to heaven again. Right then, 
three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house, that man being Cornelius. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who was called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning, referring back to the scene in Acts chapter 2. And then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Okay, so that's, that's his defense. And it's a good one. He just tells the story. Peter says, look, you know, I, I had this, I, this trance, this vision, the sheet, this, the kosher stuff. God said it was all clean. I understood actually that it was preparing me to accept people that I had written off as unclean. So God's opened up my heart and opened up my eyes to realize he died for all. And who am I to say who God can and cannot save? And so he says all this. And verse 18 says, when they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. This, this, is, this is completely a, 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 a brand new experience for these Jews to recognize, and they accept it wonderfully. They're like, wow, we didn't realize this. God is saving Gentiles too. This is incredible. Be careful that you don't write people off especially the people who don't look like you. If we were honest, there's probably a list, an unspoken list in our head of people that we've thought over the years, that person would never get saved. And when you think that, worse, say it, you're actually saying something about God. You're saying that he's not capable of saving people that you think are not savable. Be careful. Who are we to say who God can and cannot save, will and will not save, that Jesus dies for all and all can come to him freely and God can work miracles to change the hearts of people and he has done it, he is doing it, and he will always do it for his glory, amen? And so don't write off people and don't think to yourself, that person will never get saved. Pray for them, pray for them, and pray for them. I know stories about people that have been prayed for for 20, 30, 40 years, and then they came to faith in Jesus Christ. Don't give up. Keep praying for them and keep believing God was able to save and do exceedingly abundantly beyond what we could hope or imagine. Their eyes and their hearts are now open to the reality that Gentiles can be saved. Now, verse, uh, verse 19, let's read on. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen, remember that story? It was back in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, one of the first deacons, was martyred for his faith. He was killed, stoned to death, right outside the city walls of Jerusalem. When that happened, the Christians in Jerusalem got scared, and so they scattered. Because they didn't want to die either. Well, as a result of that, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Now, it's going to take a while before they realize this gospel is for all people. And, and in this section here of chapter 11, we're going to see that for the first time, not at this particular juncture, but in a couple of verses, for the first time, there's going to be an intentional evangelism towards Gentiles. But first, 
It talks about where the believers are being scattered. Now, I'm kind of a visual person, so I wanted to put together a map so you can understand uh, what's happening in terms of geography here. So, So I've pulled out the map now so we can have a wider view of the Mediterranean region. And, uh, and, and, and so one of the first things it says here is, is that uh, they traveled, as they're scattered from Jerusalem, they traveled to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. That's in verse 19. So Jerusalem is in the lower corner of your screen there, the lower right corner. And they, the Jews who are believers in Jesus get scattered. They get scattered uh, first to Phoenicia. Now, Phoenicia is a region. It's not a city. And so I've shaded it there in gray on the map. It's basically a coastal region, which would pretty much on a map today be Lebanon. And so that's where Phoenicia was, that region. So some of the believing Jews went north to Phoenicia, which is between Israel and Syria. Others went to Cyprus. Cyprus is an island there in the Mediterranean. Some went there. Some also went to Antioch, Antioch of Syria. Now, this is going to become one of the most important towns related to the early church. So keep that in mind, Antioch of Syria. Now, today, if you look at a map, Turkey actually comes down and borders Syria. And so Antioch today is actually just across the Syrian border in Turkey. But at, in, at this particular time, it was considered Syria. This is Antioch of Syria. Don't get confused. There are a couple of Antiochs in the Middle East at this time, but this is Antioch of Syria. And that's where now some of the early church has scattered as a result of the persecution and the martyrdom of Stephen. Verse 20, we've got some more places. Look, verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. All right, so we already mentioned Cyprus. Cyrene is a city located on the northern coast of Africa. Remember Simon of Cyrene? The guy who was the one called by the Romans to carry the cross for Jesus, he was from this location, Cyrene. So we have men from Cyrene, believers from Cyrene and Cyprus, and it tells us that they went to Antioch. So people from Cyrene and people from Cyprus went to Antioch. And what did they do? It says there that they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. That just basically means Gentiles telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So again, here's the first intentional missionary journey of believing Jews to try to reach non-believing Gentiles. People from Cyrene and Cyprus go to Antioch. Antioch was a very important town at this particular time, one of the third most populated towns of the Roman Empire in this region. And so it's, it's a place where there's a lot of people. In fact, it is believed that there were as many as a million people who lived in Antioch at this particular time. And so they go there to tell them the good news about Jesus Christ. And verse 21 says, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So now we've got Jew and Gentile. The early church now is growing and it's very diverse. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Okay, so Jerusalem now, they've been prepared for all of this new influx of Gentiles into the church because of their conversation with Peter. So they send Barnabas to Antioch. So he goes, 
And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So the church is just exponentially growing here now. And then it says in verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Tarsus, back to your map. Tarsus is just on the southern uh, uh, coast of the Mediterranean of Turkey. So the, the southern part of Turkey, right on the coast of the Mediterranean, there is Tarsus. This is where Paul was. Now, Paul was from Tarsus. And why was he in Tarsus? Because if you remember back in chapter 9, after Saul, who will later be known as Paul, becomes a believer in Jesus because of this great Damascus Road experience where Jesus appears to him, he becomes this guy who's just as zealous for the Lord as he was zealous for killing Christians when he was a strict Jew who thought Christians were an heretical sect. And as a result, people tried to kill him, so they put him on a ship and sent him off to Tarsus. Do you remember how long Paul was in Tarsus? Ten years. Barnabas says, you know what? The church is growing now. Things are getting so crazy. It's out of hand. We need to hire some more staff. And Barnabas says, I got to go find that maniac Saul. I got to go look for him. I know we put him on a boat. We sent him to Tarsus. And he goes to Tarsus and he gets Saul, verse 26. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So everybody's heading to Antioch. It's going to become a hub, a very central location, a major Christian center for the early church. And it says here that for a whole year, middle of verse 26, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Underline that. And that's why Antioch is a very important town. Because the name that we go by, if you're a follower of Christ, you're known as a Christian. That just means one belonging to Christ, one of Christ. That name was first coined here in Antioch. And they were known as Christians from this time forward. Here we are today, known as Christians. Well, that name was first applied to believers in Jesus at the city of Antioch. Um, it's interesting to note, when you, when you look at the ways that Christians were identified before this, in just in the book of Acts, look at what we have here, all these various ways. They were called disciples in Acts 1, then they were called saints in Acts 9, they've been called believers in Acts 5, they've been called brothers in Acts 6, they've been called witnesses in Acts 5, they've been called followers of the way in Acts 9, and now they would be called Christians here in Acts 11.26. So here they are. Saul now has come out of obscurity 10 years. 10 years. I wonder if at any point Saul felt like, did God forget me? Will God still use me? You know, I had this great Damascus Road experience and, you know, I was blind and then I could see and I was filled with the Holy Spirit and, you know, now I'm zealous for the Lord and I feel like I'm just on a shelf. You ever felt like you're on a shelf? You ever felt like and wondered, will God ever use me? You ever wondered if he's forgotten you? It had to have crossed his mind in the course of 10 years. But in God's timing, he went after Paul, sends Barnabas to go get him. And now we're going to see Paul, Saul, slash Paul, 
now we're going to see his ministry really begins to take off. Because when we get to the next uh, chapter 13, it's his first missionary journey. And so he and Barnabas are going to become these, uh, these partners in ministry for a while. They're going to have a little dispute. Even Christians argue from time to time in case you haven't noticed. They'll come back together, but they're going to have a little argument and go their separate ways for a little while. But verse 27 says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So let me go back to the map because now we got some people from Jerusalem who are going up to Antioch. It says down, again, because Jerusalem is always called a, a holy place, so everything is down no matter if you're going north. So they went to Antioch too. Everybody's heading to Antioch. And one of them, verse 28, a guy by the name of Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. So Agabus, uh, this guy who's otherwise unknown, uh, has a word of knowledge. And this is helpful for the early church because they can prepare themselves for a famine by stockpiling some food. Remember Y2K? Remember that? We thought the world was going to end in the year 2000. Everybody's stockpiling food. Everybody's got, you know, cans of stuff and extra water and, you know, dry milk that you can mix with, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and people would come up to me around that time and they'd be like, you know, is this the right thing to do? Should Christians, you know, you know stockpile our stuff? And, and, you know, we got our shotguns on the, you know, on the front. I said, Here, here's the thing. I said, here's the deal. You're going to have to, it's fine if you want to do this. It's fine. But you're going to have a huge decision to make. You go, What's that? You know, and they're standing there, they're shotguns. Not, not literally, but in their head they are. I said, people, if Y2K really does happen, and people haven't stockpiled food, and they know you have it, they're going to come to your front door. Are you going to greet them and help them and feed them, or are you going to shoot them? Ah, man. <laughs> So this guy has a word of knowledge, and, and they prepare for a severe famine. And then in parentheses, it tells us, and this actually happened during the reign of Claudius, Caesar Claudius. So it was from the Lord, it was true. And the disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. So they were generous in, in giving and helping those who, who didn't have any. Again, remember, life as a Christian in the first century, it was, uh, it was a deadly thing. And, uh, and you lost a lot of your livelihood and your friends, and, and so they had to kind of pool their resources. This is not encouraging, you know, Christian socialism here. It's just being generous and looking out for people in need. Chapter 12. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. Well, I don't want to gloss over too quickly what happened here with James, so let's back up and talk about this. So persecution is still very much uh, a real thing in the first century. The guy in power is Herod. This is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the one who gave the order for all the baby boys in Bethlehem to be killed, trying to kill Jesus. That's this guy's grandfather, Herod the Great. This guy is Herod Agrippa I, and he's just as bloodthirsty as his grandfather was. And he doesn't like Christians. And so he is going to do all he can to kill him. And so he arrests 
James, the brother of John. Remember the sons of Zebedee, James and John? These were two of the disciples of Jesus. He arrests James, and it says here that he put him to death with the sword. He has him beheaded. Now, there's an occasion in Mark chapter 10. In fact, a couple of the Gospels record the occasion when both James and John went to Jesus and asked if they could possibly have the positions of honor next to Jesus when he comes into his kingdom. Do you remember when they asked him that? They're like, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, can one of us sit at your right and one of us at your left? And one of the Gospels even says that they got their mommy to do the bidding for them. Isn't that pathetic? These are grown men. All right, grown men like mom, why don't you go ask Jesus? Maybe he'll listen to you. You go ask Jesus if one of us considered his right and one of his left. And one of the gospels says that mommy went on behalf of her two boys and said, Jesus, you know, I hate to bother you, but you know, my boys here, they're good boys. They're good Jewish boys. They could be doctors and lawyers, but you know what they really want to be is somebody who can sit at your right and sit at your left. Do you think that you could make that happen for me, please? And Jesus says, Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And can you be baptized with the baptism with which I'm going to be baptized? And you know what James and John say? They don't even know what that means, but they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, sure. Oh, dude, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's kind of how I think of it. I know they just call Jesus dude, but, you know, that's that's the way I I think of it. But so, you know, they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, we can do that. And then they probably turn to each other like, what do you think he meant by the drinking the drink thing and the baptism thing? What do you think he meant by that? What he's talking about was drinking the cup of suffering and be baptized with, with the agony that he's going to be baptized with, that he's going to go you know, to the cross and he's going to suffer and he's going to die and he's wanting to know, are you, are you willing to die for me? And he uses this terminology, you're going to drink the cup, I'm going to drink the cup of suffering, you're going to be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? They're like, oh yeah, oh dude, yeah, we can do that. And, G- and, then, he, and then he said, answer your phone and then... <laughs> But then Jesus said to them, he said, you know what? You will drink the cup that I'm going to drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with. And in fact, what he was predicting was, you will experience a life of suffering and martyrdom for my name's sake. And James will be the first of the apostles to die for his faith. John, his brother, would end up living a life of martyrdom. He's going to be the one who is sent off to the island of Patmos in his old age, and he will write by inspiration of the Spirit the book of Revelation. And he will himself suffer, but he will be the longest living and longest surviving of the apostles. But James here is going to be put to death with the sword. He's going to be beheaded because one Herod Agrippa I just didn't like him, has him killed. And then apparently a lot of people like this. You know, the people in Jerusalem who don't like the whole Jesus thing and people who are following Jesus, you know, Herod, we, we like that you killed James. And Herod gets a taste of that and says, well, great, then I'm just going to go after some other people. And he arrests Peter. And he has Peter thrown in prison. And he's guarded here by four squads of four. So he's got 16 soldiers around one guy. Now, why is he going to such an effort? I mean, this is just the apostle Peter. Well, he's going to that effort because if you remember back in chapter 5, there was a time when Peter got out of prison because an angel appeared. And so he's like, this isn't going to happen under my watch. I'm going to put 16 soldiers on them. And in fact, when they go down into the, uh, in, into the prison cell, It's going to tell us here that Peter has to sleep chained between two soldiers.
That's all for today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. What are some things you've taken away from the messages here in Acts? Would you let us know? You can get in touch with us by sending an email to prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. While you're sharing what you've learned, feel free to send us a prayer request so we can know how to be praying for our listeners. That email again is prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. Our radio ministry is an outpouring of what's going on here at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary teaches every Sunday at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays. To learn more about who we are, go to cornerstoneconnection.cc. We're so happy that you're part of our listening audience, and we'd be delighted to meet you and hear your faith journey. Like so many of the people mentioned in Acts, there's much transformation that happens in a person's heart when they seek to follow after God. We hope that's the case for you, too. All that to say, we hope you'll continue to tune in to these messages and keep growing as you dig into the book of Acts with us. We'll be right here, same time, same place, at Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know